Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. We're in Epiphany season. Part of Epiphany season is saving justice. This is our third year in saving justice, and part of saving justice, no, part, what is saving justice? is this fundamental belief that scripture starts at the bottom. It's counterintuitive, uh, it's subversive, because it's written from the marginalized, the dispossessed, and those that have been pushed away from the centers of power. And we try and bring speakers in that represent and provide voice for the voiceless. And so I ask, both campuses to step into a different narrative than the typical one that we typically hear in order to get out of our own echo chambers and see the full breadth and weight of God's scripture. In case you don't know, my name is Eric Knox. I'm a pastor here at Imago Dei Eastside. We're doing exceptionally well. It's good to be here. I don't get here often enough, but I love you and Eastside sends its greetings. Come check us out any Sunday, 10 a.m. We are just an extension of Central, and Central is an extension of us. But this morning, we have a very, we have a treat. We have an incredible speaker this morning named Mark Charles. Mark Charles is a Navajo uh, who is an activist that does a lot of work around native rights and issues. He sits on the board of CCDA and the Reformed Church USA, Christian Reformed Church USA. Uh, he's married, he has three kids. Um, you're gonna hear him this morning. He's gonna challenge you. Tomorrow, if you want to go deeper into these conversations around what we're doing here with Saving Justice and hearing Mark, he'll be at the first church, Bridgetown for some of you. Uh, we're doing a special night for the city, for churches. He's going to rock it, of course. I'd love to get as many Imago Day folks there as possible. Um, he's going to preach his heart out, and he's an incredible communicator, which you're getting ready to see. So please, tomorrow night, 7 o'clock at Bridgetown, First Church USA, not First Church USA, First Church, First Baptist Church at that, all right? 7 p.m. This morning, I'm going to read the scripture. If you want to turn with me, Luke chapter 9, verse 46 through 56. Luke chapter 9, verse 46 through 56. I'm going to read the scripture, and, and then Mark's going to come up and preach. Verse 46. An argument started among the disciples to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. 
Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. This is the reading of God's word. Thank you. Oh, let me have the Bible. Let me take the Bible. Sorry. Thanks. Yat e bene. Yat e bene. Mark Charles Yenishia. Sinbake dena nishlem to tohiglini bashichin. Sinbake dena bashiche do tohichitni bashinella. So in the Navajo culture, when you introduce yourself, you always give your four clans. We're a matrilineal people, and so our identities come from our mother's mother. My mother's mother is actually American of Dutch heritage. So when I introduce myself, I say, which translated means the wooden shoe people. <laughs> my father's mother, my second clan, is Higlini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbakedene'a. And my fourth clan, my father's father, is Todachitni, which is the Bitterwater clan, one of the original clans of our Navajo people. Um, I want to warn you this morning, before we get into our sermon, that I am going to be teaching some things, both from the scriptures and from history, that most of you have never heard. Um, they are going to be very, very challenging, and they're going to make you uncomfortable. At some point, you may want to stand up and walk out. You may even want to throw something at me. I encourage you to not follow either impulse, um, but stay in the dialogue. If we can get the presentation up, that'd be great. But stay in the dialogue, and we will um, we'll definitely get to a, to a place that we need to be, but we're going to have to get through some challenging uh, pieces before we get there. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we could be here. We thank you for the sun that rose. We thank you for the rain that fell. We thank you for the life that you are giving to the world around us. We thank you for another day to know you and to know one another and to follow you and to be drawn closer to you. We ask that you will bless our time this morning, that you will use the reflections of my heart to teach us, and that you will, you will work in us and through us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the disciples are having an argument, an argument not unlike we haven't seen in our own lifetime. They want to know who is the greatest. Now great is a, a tricky word. There's no definitive definition of great. Um, the Oxford Dictionary defines great as of an extent, amount, or intensity considerably above average. The uh, Webster Dictionary defines great as chief or preeminent over others. 
Great is not a distinct definition. Great is a comparison. You're great in relationship to something else. You're great in regards to your context. I like to say that greatness is something you know it when you see it. And so the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. And Jesus, the first thing we have to note is he doesn't rebuke them for this. He doesn't say don't strive to be great, don't look to be great. He doesn't rebuke them for wanting to be great. Instead, he takes a child and he brings the child into the midst of their dialogue because again, greatness is defined not on its own, it's defined in context, it's defined in relationship. And so he brings in a comparison. If you want to be great, we need to be great in relation to a child. Now, this is a very different way of thinking for the people of Israel. The people of Israel have a very distinct understanding of what greatness is, even from their own history. So if you look at the, the history of Israel and their greatness, we hear about the Moses parting the Red Sea. We hear about Joshua claiming promised lands. We hear about King David and his battles he won, Solomon with his wealth, and Elijah calling down fire from heaven. All of these beautifully and wonderfully powerful images that we see of, of the people of Israel and God working through the people of Israel throughout their history. But if we look closer, I mean, if we think about the Red Sea and what Moses did, why was that so great? What happened? The people were coming out of Israel. They were going to go to their promised land. And who was chasing them? The soldiers of Egypt and the Pharaoh of Egypt. And when they parted the Red Sea, what happened after the people walked through it? the water came crashing back down. Hundreds, thousands of people lost their lives. When Joshua went in and claimed the promised land, what was their command from God to do? What were they to do with the Canaanites and the people living in their promised land? Kill everybody. David, a mighty warrior. Saul had killed hundreds and maybe thousands, but David, his tens of thousands, his hands were so bloody, God wouldn't even let him build the temple. Solomon, we love these images of his wealth and how incredibly over-the-top wealthy he was. And Elijah, three times in the scriptures, he calls down fire from heaven, wants to burn up um, uh, an offering, and twice again to burn up 50 soldiers, two times. After he, he called down the fire to burn up the offering, he then slaughtered the prophets of Baal. These are the images of greatness that the people of Israel had. And so when the disciples go into Samaria with Jesus, again, the Samaritans, they are like the people who have broken the law. They're probably one of the reasons why they're being judged by God in the first place, because they intermarried and they went out with other um, people who were not Jewish, and they were worshiping on the mountain instead of in the temple, and they were bringing down the wrath from God on them. And they go out with Jesus to preach to the Samaritans, and the Samaritans do what? They reject them. They reject Jesus. Now, what happens in the Old Testament when God gives you a chance to repent and you reject him? You get toasted, right? I mean, let's be honest. Sodom and Gomorrah. Jericho. We see this time and time again. So it's not outlandish when the disciples walk out of Samaria, Samaria, they think, hey, we're pretty good. We went there and preached in the first place. The people rejected Jesus and they're like, cool. Now, Jesus, can I call down fire from, 
believe we get to do this. They're excited, right? This is the image of greatness that it looks like from the Old Testament. What does Jesus do? He rebukes them. He rebukes them. Now as the church and as a nation, we have a similar challenge with our understanding of greatness. We just had a whole election that was all about greatness. We have a president who has vowed and promised to make America great again. So we have to have a discussion, just like the people of Israel, what is their image of greatness? What is America's image of greatness? We tend to think of America's greatness as we are this great Christian nation. We have a legacy of discovery. We have equality for everyone. We have this history of expansion, manifest destiny. We have exceptionalism, and we have liberty and justice for all. These are our images of our nation's greatness. But we need to go back and look at some of this history a little bit closer. So I want to go back to the first to third centuries. In the first century, you had the church and you had the empire. They were completely separate. When you joined the church through your baptism, your confession, your discipleship, and your community, you knew that you stood in opposition to the empire. You knew there was a good chance you would be killed and persecuted for your faith, for your membership in the church. Now in the fourth century, Constantine becomes emperor of Rome and he Christianizes Rome, creates a Christian empire, something Jesus fought adamantly against. He had three chances in the, in the Gospels to make a Christian empire, and he walked away from each of them. He kept saying, my kingdom is not of this earth. I'm here for something bigger, something beyond this. But Constantine created a Christian empire and nearly fundamentally destroyed what it meant to be the church. Because now instead of joining the church through your baptism, your confession, your discipleship, and your repentance, now you join the church because of your citizenship in the empire. This creates a problem. In the fifth century, the Christian empire is doing things that empires do, which is it's going to war. Now a plain text reading of scripture doesn't allow this, especially of the gospels. And so we need someone like Augustine to come in and do a little bit of theological gymnastics for us and develop a just war theory. Something that allows this Christian entity to go out and be disobedient to the teachings of Jesus and go to war. Over the years, this just war theory morphs into what are known as the Crusades. The Crusades are all about expanding the empire as well as protecting Jerusalem. And in the 13th century, we see the writings of the papal bulls beginning to reflect a new term that they call infidels, a category of other, primarily referencing the Moors or the Muslims, and later it's used in relation to um, Indigenous peoples are people who don't worship the God of the Christian church. And they create this subcategory of others known as infidel. Now, once they have this, they no longer even need a just war theory because now your wars are justifiable based on your theological grounds. Now you are out fighting the other. So in the 1400s, we have Pope Nicholas V writing down these words, invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever. Reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. Convert them to his and their use and profit. This papal bull written in 1452, along with others written up until 1493, collectively become known as what we call the doctrine of discovery. 
The doctrine of discovery is essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever land you find not ruled by Christian rulers, those people are less than human and the land yours for the taking. This was the doctrine that allowed the European nations to go into Africa, colonize the continent, and enslave the African people. They weren't human. This is the same doctrine that let Columbus, who was literally lost at sea, land in this new world that was already inhabited by millions and claimed to have discovered it. If you think about it, you cannot discover lands already inhabited, right? If you don't believe me, leave your cell phones, your purses, your car keys, your laptops out in front of you. I'll come by and discover them for you. <laughs> Clearly, that's not discovery. That's stealing. The fact that to this day we refer to what Columbus did as discovery reveals the implicit racial bias of the nation which is native peoples, people of color, are not fully human. This makes the doctrine of discovery a racist doctrine that is the direct fruit of the church getting into bed with the empire. Now in 1763, King George drew a line down the Appalachian Mountains and he said to the people, the colonists, they no longer had the right of discovery of the empty Indian lands west of Appalachia. This upset the colonists. They wanted access to those lands. So a few years later, they wrote a letter of protest. In their letter, they accused the king of raising the conditions of new appropriations of land. They went on in their letter to state that he has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages. They signed their letter on July 4th, 1776. Literally 30 lines below the statement, all men are created equal, the Declaration of Independence refers to natives as merciless Indian savages. Making it very clear, the only reason they used the inclusive language, all men, is because they had a very narrow definition of who was and who was not human. This, of course, makes our Declaration of Independence a racist document that assumes the dehumanization of people of color. Now, a few years later, our founding fathers wrote another document. This document began with the words, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union. This, of course, was the preamble to the Constitution of the United States. Now, just a few lines later in their Constitution, Article 1, Section 2, the section of the Constitution that, re that defined who was and who was not included in this Constitution, who was and who was not included in this new experiment, it states, well, first of all, we have to know it never mentions women. It specifically excludes natives, and it counts African people as three-fifths of a person. So literally, the Constitution was written to protect white landowning men. We have to wrap our heads around that. The purpose of the Constitution is to protect the interests of white landowning men. So we act surprised today that women earn 70 cents to the dollar. This shouldn't shock us. The Constitution's working. We act surprised our prisons are filled with people of color. This shouldn't shock us. The Constitution's working. We act surprised that in 2010, the Supreme Court sided with Citizens United and declared a rule that now corporations have the same rights to political free speech as individuals, creating an open door for super PACs and unlimited contributions to candidates. This should not shock us. The Constitution of the United States is doing exactly what it was designed to do. It's protecting the interests of white landowning men. Now, maybe you're thinking, wait, didn't we correct that? Well, we tried. So we passed the 14th Amendment. 
The 14th Amendment, or the 13th Amendment, was the amendment used to outlaw slavery. However, it stated that, except as a punishment for a crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. So slavery is still legal in the United States, if you're convicted of a crime. So I think we need to look at our incarceration rates. So the United States of America incarcerates people at a rate five times that of most nations. We incarcerate 693 people for every 100,000 people. You can see where we are off the charts in comparison to other, even just NATO nations. We are the highest rate of incarceration in the world. There was a statement by Diego Arlene Morley a few years ago who said, today there are more African-American men in prison, jail, or on probation, or in parole than who were enslaved in 1850. Now, there was a, a, a truth-checking website that I went through, and in 1850 there were 872, 873 male African-American slaves over the age of 15. In 2013, we had 526,000 African-American men serving time in state or federal correctional facilities. We had 877,000 African-American men on probation, and we had 280,000 African-American male parolees. That is 1.683 million African-American men under state and federal criminal justice supervision. That is 810,000 more than we had enslaved in 1850. In the United States, the 13th Amendment is used to justify and legalize slavery. And we incarcerate our people of color at astronomically high rates. We also passed the 14th Amendment. This amendment was meant to address directly Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution. The 14th Amendment extended the right of citizenship to anyone born on this continent under the jurisdiction of the government. However, it still specifically excluded natives. It still specifically excluded women. And so while it gave some rights of citizenship to a few former male slaves, we, have to forget, we can't forget that Jim Crow laws were written after the 14th Amendment. Segregation happened after the 14th Amendment. Internment camps happened after the 14th Amendment. Boarding schools were enacted after the 14th Amendment. Women didn't get the right to vote until 1924 or 1920. Natives didn't get the right to vote until 1924. And in our place in the Southwest, we didn't get the right to vote until 1948. And we can't forget that it was in 1970, this very same amendment, the 14th Amendment, was used in Roe versus Wade, which now concluded unborn babies aren't human, and therefore they can be aborted. What this demonstrates is that the heart of our Constitution is not a value for life. There is a practice of dehumanization with a value for exploitation and profit. This makes the Constitution a racist, sexist document that assumes the white landowning male has the authority to determine who is and who is not human. Now, in 1823, we had a Supreme Court case. This was Johnson versus McIntosh, two men of European descent. They're litigating over a single piece of land. One of them got the land from a native tribe. The other one got the land from the government. They want to know who owned it. The case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. The court had to determine the principle upon which land titles were based. 
they concluded the principle was that discovery gave title to the government by whose subjects or by whose authority it was made against all other European governments, and that title might be consummated by possession. This court case, they actually went on in this court case to rule that natives who are here first, but are less than human, we only have the right of occupancy to the land, while Europeans have the right of discovery to the land and therefore the true title to it. This court case referenced the doctrine of discovery and along with a few other cases during the Marshall era became the legal precedent for land titles. Now the doctrine of discovery and this precedent were referenced by the Supreme Court as recently as 2005. This of course makes our Supreme Court a racist court that has legal precedent based on the dehumanization of people of color. Now initially, the Protestant church pushed back against the doctrine of discovery. This was the Catholic doctrine, they didn't fully buy into it. But in 1630, John Winthrop preached a sermon in the Boston Harbor. It was titled, A Mall of Christian Charity. And in this sermon, he referred to the colonists as a city on a hill, borrowing from the image of Jesus when he was preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, telling his disciples to be a lamp on a stand, a city on a hill, shining their good deeds into this dark world. He goes on in his sermon to exhort them in all meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality, to rejoice together, mourn together, to labor and suffer together. Good, basic Christian exhortations. At the end of his sermon, when he's motivating them, he begins quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 30 is the passage in the Old Testament where the people of Israel are standing at the banks of the Jordan River, and they're about ready to go in and take possession of their promised lands. And God is reminding them of their land covenant. If you obey me, I will do these things for you. If you disobey me, I will do these things for you. So it says, but if our hearts shall turn away so that we will not obey and we worship other gods, we shall surely perish out of the good land whether we pass over. Now Deuteronomy 30 says river, but John Winthrop says vast sea. Why does he say that? Well, he didn't cross a river, he crossed an ocean. So what's he implying? Based on Jesus' exhortation to be a city on a hill, based on the model of Old Testament Israel, they are standing on the banks of their promised land about ready to take possession of them. Now, I've already discussed Israel's command in the book of Joshua was to do what? Kill everybody. Promised lands for one people is literally God-ordained genocide for another. I call this sermon the birth of American exceptionalism. It percolates for about 100 years. Mid-1700s, our nation begins expanding westward. We go past the Appalachian Mountains, past the Mississippi River. As we're moving west, the Second Great Awakening begins taking place. There's a renewal of churches, a renewal of denominations. There's this religious fervor as we go further and further west. And in the early 1800s, the term manifest destiny is coined. This belief that this nation had the God-ordained right to rule this continent from sea to shining sea. So now that we have a racist doctrine of discovery, a racist declaration of independence, a racist Supreme Court, a racist constitution, and a God-ordained right to commit genocide, now we have a bunch of history we've never talked about. So I did some research, and this is a, a chart of our nation from 1775 to 2016. Every year in blue is a year that I found we were in a declared state of war 
our armed military conflict against another nation, our empire. Every year in red is a nation, is a year that we were fighting against native peoples. The list of wars at the bottom are wars we fought during the 19th century against native peoples. You can see we had almost a 75 year period of straight warfare against Native Americans. The 19th century is the century that we refer to as our century of expansion. This was the century we added about 30 new states to the Union. While clearly this wasn't a century of expansion, this was a century of ethnic cleansing and genocide. It was during this century that we had the Indian Removal Act. This was an act of Congress that allowed the military in practice by force to remove nations from their lands in the east to empty lands further in the west. This resulted in the Trail of Tears. This resulted in the Long Walk. All told, about a dozen tribes and tens of thousands of people died as a direct result of this order. It was during this period that we had the Dakota 38, the largest mass execution in the history of our nation, ordered by President Abraham Lincoln. It was during this period we had, in 1864, the Sand Creek Massacre, about 200 Cheyenne and Arapaho men, women, and children massacred by a U.S. Army, even though they were waving a white flag of surrender and an American flag, showing they were there peacefully. The army, led by a Methodist minister, came in and ordered them all slaughtered. It was later reported that their genitalia were paraded down the streets of Denver. 1879, we had the Indian boarding schools begin started, run by churches and the government. The stated goal of these schools was to kill the Indian to save the man. These schools remained open until as late as the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. We had the massacre at Wounded Knee, about 350 Native uh, people massacred in a single day at Wounded Knee. We know a little bit more about this. We teach it a little bit more. What we don't talk about is that our Congress gave 20 Congressional Medals of Honor to the U.S. soldiers who participated in this massacre. America's greatness. First of all, we're not a Christian nation. Our legacy of discovery is actually dehumanization. Our belief in equality is only for a select few. Our expansion amounts to ethnic cleansing. Our exceptionalism is a coping mechanism for genocide. And our liberty and justice is literally for white landowning men. We have the same challenges as the people of Israel had, as the disciples had, with what we compare greatness to. Now, I want to critique what just happened in the last 18 months, but I want to help you understand I'm not doing this as a partisan voice, as a partisan person. As a Native man, as I watched the election unfold for the last two years, I was very intrigued because on one hand, we had a candidate who was campaigning to do what? Make America great again, correct? We had another candidate who responded to that, Hillary Clinton, and she responded by saying, America's great already. America's always been great. Cory Booker at the Democratic National Convention, endorsing Hillary Clinton, he actually said, he acknowledged in his speech the word savages in the declaration. He acknowledged the three-fifths compromise. He acknowledged the, uh, the um, exclusion of women. 
But he concluded that section of his speech by saying, but this does not diminish our country's greatness. The challenge we had this last election is we had one candidate who I would say actually understood what made America great, which was colonialism rooted in sexism and racism. And he was ready to bring that back explicitly. And we had another candidate who was saying, let's keep those values, but let's keep them implicitly. So the dialogue we had this last election was not a racist, anti-racist dialogue. The dialogue we had was, do we want Donald Trump to champion racism, sexism, colonialism explicitly, or do we want Hillary Clinton to work to keep those values implicit? That was the discussion that we had. Now, I went to bed the night of the election. I was speaking at Wheaton College the next day. I was completely prepared to critique the fact that we elected a president who was implicitly racist. I woke up in the morning and had to rearrange my entire talk. <laughs> so how do you campaign to make America great again? Well, you start your political activism by bragging about your leading role in the birther movement when you publicly shame the democratically elected African-American president on the global stage and made him force him to show his birth certificate. In your opening campaign event, you brand Mexicans as rapists and murderers. You go on to say that you're going to build a wall protecting our nation and you're going to make Mexico pay for it. After a terrorist attack, you propose a ban on all Muslims coming into the country. And after it comes out that you believe your fame and your fortune gives you the right to sexually assault women, you don't worry about it because it's probably not going to cost you a vote anyway. This is what greatness looks like in a nation such as ours. Now, if we were outside the church, I would stop the presentation here and we would deal with this. But we're in the church. So we have to deal with the fact that 81% of white evangelicals and 60% of white Catholics voted for this president voted to make America great again. Why did they do that? Well, there was a very telling interview by Donald Trump on CBN on, August, on October 27th. And he was asked about evangelicals, and he said, we're doing very well with evangelicals. And if they vote, we're going to win the election. And we're going to have a great Supreme Court. We're going to have religious liberty, because religious liberty, let's face it, I saw a high school football coach the other day, and they were praying before the game. You know, they're going into combat. They're in the locker room praying, and I think they're going to fire him. And, you know, they suspended him. I think they want to fire him. Who ever heard of a thing like this? And I always say to you, we're going to be all saying Merry Christmas again. But the truth is, religious liberty is under tremendous stress. Now, I've traveled the nation in the past two years. I've spoke with conservative, liberal, Christian, non-Christian, and I've engaged with people of why are we voting a certain way, what are we doing, and I think Donald Trump hit it on the head. The primary reason I saw the church supported Donald Trump is A, pro-life, and B, religious liberty. So we have to examine this. We have to think about this. I want to start with the Supreme Court and the pro-life. Now, I am avidly pro-life. 
I've been pro-life my entire life. In college, I gave a speech on my pro-life beliefs and values. And in this speech, I gave it at UCLA, I got chewed up and spit out by my classmates. Because as they heard my speech, they realized I had no value for the women who were receiving abortions and the circumstances they were coming out of. I had no value for the people whose job it was to support this industry. I had no value for the children after they were born. My speech was all about ending abortion. It wasn't about pro-life. And so they chewed me up and spit me out. And I realized I wasn't advocating pro-life. I was advocating for a pro-issue. And as I looked around and looked at the church, I realized the church was doing the same thing. The church was avidly pro-issue. It wasn't pro-life. You can't be pro-life if you can't bring yourself to say Black Lives Matter. <laughs> Donald Trump is not pro-life. You cannot treat women the way he treats them. You cannot treat people from other religions the way he talks about them. You cannot treat immigrants from the South the way he talks and treats them and be pro-life. Donald Trump is not pro-life. He's hardly pro-issue, but he's definitely not pro-life. Second, he campaigned on a theme for religious liberty. So let's see what Jesus says about religious liberty. Well, in Luke 21, he's warning his disciples and says, before all of this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. You will be brought before kings and governors all on account of my name, and so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdoms that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will live. Win life. What does Jesus think about religious liberty? What does he warn the disciples? Second, Donald Trump mentions this football coach. And up in Washington, there was a football coach. After games, he was praying with his players. Or he went to the center of the field and started praying. Some of his teammates started joining him, his players. And soon the whole team was there praying. Now the school came to him and said, you can't do this. You're the coach. This is a public, a public high school. You can't lead this meeting because your players might be praying, not because they believe in the prayer, but because they want more playing time and they don't want to be excluded. It looks coercive. And so they banned him from praying. They said, if you want to pray quietly by yourself in private, that's fine, but do not do this in public. Now I saw an interview by this coach and he said, I'm a Christian who wears his faith on his sleeve. I'm not a Christian that's going to go off and pray in the closet. I read op-eds by commentators all around the country who were appalled that the state told this man to go and pray in a closet. 
What does Jesus say? When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So let me get this straight. We voted... For Donald Trump, who's not pro-life, he's barely pro-issue, and we voted to protect religious liberty when Jesus tells us not to expect it ever, and actually when we get persecuted, he's going to use that to advance the gospel, and the expression of religious liberty that we're fighting for is the right to pray in public in a way that absolutely ensures God's not going to hear us in the first place. What are we doing? What are we doing? Do we not know the scriptures? Do we not spend time with Jesus? Do we not know what we were called to? God has a completely different picture and understanding of greatness. God uses a prostitute and puts her in the lineage of Jesus. God chooses as a king, someone who his family didn't even think was worth bringing to the lineup. He was so insignificant. God was blown away that when he told Solomon he could ask for anything, Solomon asked for wisdom. God spoke to Elijah, not in the thunder, not in the lightning, but in a still, small voice. When God came to this earth, he wasn't born in a palace. He didn't have riches untold. He was born to an unwed mother in a barn and grew up as a refugee. When Jesus' disciples were arguing about who was the greatest, Jesus grabbed a child, brought it into the midst. This is greatness. Not what the world tells you. Not what the world looks at. It's something completely and utterly different. Great is a comparative word. There's no definitive definition. You're great in relationship, in context to something else. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. There is no such thing as a Christian empire. There is a church And the church is meant to be separate and prophetic from the empire. We are in this world, but we are not of it. Jesus, he called his disciples his friends. 
He came as the Messiah. He comforted. He healed. He protected. He walked alongside. But he also rebuked. The scriptures tell us that God disciplines those he loves. And Jesus rebuked those who are the closest to him. I want to read this passage for you one more time. An argument started among the disciples to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you that is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not with us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was standing and heading towards Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked him. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.